Welcome to episode 105 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Basie, none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the associate editor at the magazine. And today we're going to be talking about the award-winning musical Standing at the Sky's Edge, which, after being interrupted by COVID, has finally transferred from the Crucible in Sheffield to London's National Theatre. It's based on the music and lyrics of songwriter, guitarist and producer Richard Hawley, who's known both as a solo artist and for his work with the band's Pulp and the Long Pigs. He collaborated with the award-winning playwright, lyricist and theatre maker Chris Bush, and she's now rightly, if you ask me, being hailed as a genius for weaving Richard Hawley's music into this compelling story. So Standing at the Sky's Edge tells the stories of people living in the notorious brutalist housing project Park Hill in Sheffield in the early 60s, when Park Hill first opened its doors to today. It's directed by Rob Hastie. He's the artistic director of Sheffield Theatres. He has a string of credits under his belt, including the original Standing at the Sky's Edge in 2019 and the post-lockdown version. We're delighted to welcome him onto the podcast today. Welcome, Rob. Hello, hi. Well, I'm very excited because I have seen the play and I can't congratulate you enough. It's open to rave reviews and almost unanimous accolades. And the night I went to the Olivier, the whole theatre was on its feet at the end. So it's very, very popular. And I'm very happy as a Londoner that's transferred here finally and that I managed to get a seat. Can you start by telling our listeners a bit about Park Hill itself? Yeah, of course. So Park Hill is, uh, as Ed says, it's a big, uh, brutalist housing development on sort of the edge of the city centre in Sheffield. I can I can actually see it from my, my office here. It it's dominates the skyline on the edge of Sheffield. It was very, very controversial when it was first put up. It was building started in the late 1950s opened uh, in the early 1960s and it was a big kind of socialist utopian housing solution to the city's housing problems it, the slums that were cleared to to build it along park hill were had become a very very dilapidated and dangerous part of the city and so inspired by corbusier and and uh, similar projects on the continent the city built these streets in the sky and uh, they were literal streets the, uh, they are literal streets. The, the, they were given the same names as the streets that they of the slums that they replaced, and uh, they were famously wide enough to drive a milk float down. <laughs> and those first those first tenants, those first uh, council tenants that that moved in in the in, in the early sixties, were often housed in the same sort of community units that that they'd been the groups that they that they where they'd been living in their in the houses that, that the building replaced. So it opened to huge fanfare and not a little controversy uh, about 10 years actually before this building, the Crucible opened, also very controversial, also built of concrete. And for the first sort of 10 years or so of its of its life, it was, uh, it worked, it functioned. It was, uh, there was all mod cons and the people who moved in were very, largely very happy. And uh, as you get a lot of in the show, the the views from those flats are extraordinary. You can see right across the city, right across to the peaks. It's extraordinary the the kind of uh, the vistas that you get. The building then falls into decline over the course of the seventies, as does the city, as does the industry, as do the industries on which the city relies, as does you know discuss the country, and we our story follows that trajectory from sort of early hope through. Um, decline and then out the other side into what's happened 
over the last few years where a property developer has uh, completely redone that building. And there's a lot of debate here and in the show about gentrification and about the politics of that, but it's undoubted that they are that they that it's given those buildings a new lease of life, and that the people who now live there are, are are kind of experiencing those views and 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 inheriting that that extraordinary building that was built for the city in the sixties. I've been round Park Hill with um, Have you? Tom Bloxham from Urban Splash. Yeah, the- I went round when I was a minister. I mean, I think it's it's a really interesting conundrum because obviously I think most people look... I'm going on a bit of a tangent here because we want to come back to the show, but I am interested in architecture and urban design. I mean, they were a sort of utopian dream, but they didn't really work. They weren't organic. But there's no doubt that uh, Urban Splash did a, have done an amazing job. But I mean, it's interesting. Sheffield does look pretty spick and span when you go and visit it. I mean, what's it like as a city at the moment? Um, oh, it's got a wonderful vista when you come out of the station, you know, that really important bit of, you know, when you visit a city of coming out and getting a first impression, it looks pretty magnificent. It does. And and <clears throat> certainly it looks uh, it looks a lot tidier and happier than it did when I first started coming to the theatre here when I was in my teens or indeed when my parents were at, at college here in the, in the 70s. But it still it, it still has, like all northern cities, it has the bits that it's uh, where it shows its face to the world that it's very proud of and then the bits that it's equally proud of but that it, but that are areas of uh, great social deprivation of uh, difficulty still still experiencing the fallout from uh, uh, what, what happened in the industry here in in, in the 80s sheffield is is a very very proud city it's built it's it's built of of many villages and many communities and that's what standing at the sky's edge aims to do is to kind of uh, it, obviously it can't represent every single one of those communities and villages but but to sort of present a kind of panorama of um all the many voices that have uh, uh, that have existed in Sheffield over the years let's go back to those voices because what struck me about this musical was how incredibly deft Chris Bush has been at weaving those stories together. How did it happen? I mean, whose idea was all this? So the, the, That's exactly the, what I was going to ask. <laughs> the bright idea of putting the the Sheffield monolith of Park Hill together with the Sheffield monolith of Richard Hawley, <laughs> um, uh, putting those two things together was a brilliant producer called Rupert Lord, who then came to Sheffield Theatres, uh, another great Sheffield monolith and said uh, uh, how about this and and the project just grew from there it took a long time a, a musical about a housing estate doesn't doesn't sound like a massively appealing prospect and Richard <laughs> is Richard is many many things but uh, a, a dyed-in-the-wool musical enthusiast he isn't oh, I can imagine. and <laughs> uh, and so to finding the right the right form the right kind of the right narratives to kind of weave together uh, and the right glue for that to, to make his music sing and make it mean something other than just just you know tr- trying to find a sort of crass way to, to to weave songs into an existing narrative that 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 took a lot of time and that is chris's largely chris's genius to have found a way to to make those songs which are sort of aching and poetic and uh, but they're not narrative they don't they're not like the songs of other great Sheffield music legends like Jarvis Cocker or Alex Turner of the Arctic Monkeys, they don't tell mini stories. They are sort of soulful, lyrical poems, really. And uh, the way, finding a way to, to make that music 
mean something in a narrative context was was a was a long journey of discovery. But I I, I'm, I agree. I think the way she's managed to weave together all of that is is really extraordinary. But also, you staged it so incredibly. There's one scene in particular that just sort of blew my mind. But there's a scene where you've got all three stories at the table at the same time and you're sort of moving between each other with this it's just it's phenomenal it's just so slick it's just absolutely fantastic so tell us about the three stories so in in the 1960s you've got harry and rose who are a working class couple sheffield couple he's uh, he works in the, he's a, a foreman, youngest foreman history, as, as he frequently says, in uh, in a steelworks in Sheffield. They are, they move in full of the the hope of those initial tenants and their journey traces the course of uh, of the decline that, that, that I mentioned before. In, ni- in the 1980s, the, the family to move in after Harry and Rose have moved out are a family of uh, Liberian refugees. They're escaping the civil war in Liberia and uh, you have Joy and her two cousins. Joy, when she moves in, uh, a young teenage girl who um, initially hates it and it it feels very unwelcome and is made to feel very unwelcome, but meets uh, a lad called Jimmy. They form a friendship and eventually a relationship that then sees us through the next chunk of the the timeline. Uh, uh, And when, when they are finally replaced... Um, when all of all of the tenants were moved out uh, during the late nineties, early noughties, to make way for uh, the, the redevelopment, and one of the first people to buy uh, a flat in the new development is uh, Poppy, who is a Londoner or, or, or Southerner anyway, uh, who has been living in London and is escaping what we learn at the beginning of the play is uh, is, is a sort of failed quite toxic relationship and has decided to leave all of that behind her and set up a new life uh, amongst the hills the seven hills of Sheffield so and, and and as you say Chris's Chris's genius is to tell all three of those stories simultaneously and she was really she she she, she was clear from the beginning that if you told a, a, a chronological story it, it it could feel quite depressing Yes, <laughs> um, uh, because it is a story of decline, and and then sort of com- you know a compromised uh, new dawn in in this age of gentrification. But if you weave all of those stories together, then those those moments of joy and hope and disappointment and despair kind of clash against each other um, and and resonate with each other and amplify each other across history and across time in the, in the same flat. It's very much got a sense of if these walls could talk, kind of, the, you know, they are the ghosts in each other's story. And nowhere more so than that that scene that you talk about, the um, uh, which, I, which is actually one of the things I think in my whole directing career I am proudest of. Um, because it took such a bloody long time to make work, how you managed to get three families sitting together at this, across across time, sitting together, having a meal at the same table. And uh, it's not just the meal, it's also the preparation of the meal that happens in the kitchen. And, and choreographing that with our brilliant choreographer, Lynn Page, was, was a massive feat. Yeah, no, it's brilliant. And as Richard Hawley says, you know, this, you know, Park Hill itself is a complete symbol of the way Britain's gone, isn't it? From sort of socialist post-war utopian hope and then to, to industrial chaos and decline. And now, where are we now? What I think is one of the things that we're all proudest of is that it's, uh, that it doesn't tub thump. You know, it has some very strong 
it has lots of politics in it. It's a city, it's a very politicised city, but it's, you know, we were, we were just laughing this morning that um, we just we just read our um, five-star review in the Daily Mail this morning, um, having enjoyed four and five stars in, 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 in other papers of all kind of political stripes and going, actually, that, that it would be very easy to look at this story and take a, uh, uh, take a firm line on on what you think it means and and on what you think it says and i think it, we've worked very hard to uh, to 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 kind of make it uh, available for everyone really the the, the ultimate it ultimate it's also it's ultimately about community and uh, about the people and one of the characters says it's you know a, a home is just a box to keep out the rain it's it's what you put in it that matters and uh, and that becomes the sort of i th- i hope the kind of spirit that we send our audiences out with what does richard hawley i mean what does he think of it now i know that chris went through his whole catalog and actually trawled through it for the best possible songs how involved was he in the actual writing process uh he's been really involved in i mean he's been involved in very specific ways so um you know some of his favorite sheffield anecdotes and and gags have have gone into the script and, and been woven in a very good gag about the city's two football teams that that um, is pure Richard Hawley. You know, he re- I think he recognises that Chris does what she does very well. Um, and we all know that he does what he does very well. And so actually they've they've worked together really brilliantly. I, I, I should also mention that they the music is is really imaginatively and beautifully arranged by brilliant um, uh, orchestrator called Tom Deering. All of those songs were written for Richard to perform and all in Richard's kind of style and and so making those sing musically for multiple voices or for female voices for different voices for a variety of voices um has been tom's work with richard and and uh uh, i think that's contributed massively to 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 what the piece is so the songs are not originally written for the musical they're taken from richard hawley's catalogue and weaved in that's right yeah Uh, we um Uh, we wouldn't call it a jukebox musical, but but um, uh, it's a back catalogue musical. When they, when we first did it in 2019, there were new songs in there that from from Richard's new um, album albums that have come out since. But yes, it's it, they all exist. They were all the songs were ex- existed in a different context. Tell us how uh, tell us how the Crucibles because it's been around. Well, this incarnation has been around for 50 years, but it's been around for longer than that. I mean, it is a very much you're one of the senior theatres in England. We're very lucky. We have a beautiful little network of theatres, a little complex of theatres rather, the the Crucible, the Playhouse next door, which is our smaller space, and the Lyceum just across the square. That those those together make up Sheffield theatres and between them they're about that that's about two and a half thousand seats a night. So it's quite a sizable indication of just how much this city loves its theatre. And that's kept us going through quite difficult months as 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 every theatre has had in the last last couple of years. Um we make theatre for our audiences and, and our audiences kind of repay that with their loyalty and their willingness to, to take on new work, to, to, to go, yeah, all right, we'll come and see a show about a housing estate, why not? The Crucible itself is, as you say, it's, it's, um, it's just over 50 years old. We celebrated its 50th birthday last year, slightly late, but last year. And we celebrated it with a project that brought all three theatres together by stage, it was called Rock Paper Scissors, again written by Chris Bush, and all it was three different plays and three different play, theatres, all performed by the same cast at the same time. 
So they were running between the theatres. As they exited in one theatre, they enter in another. And we used that kind of mad feat of logistics to to celebrate the uh, the 50th anniversary of this of this great theatre. I'd love to have seen that. You almost certainly will never see it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like there's no there's nowhere else that could do it. There's nowhere no, else no. that would want to. I want to go back to the Park Hill a bit. How much social housing is there in it now, or is there any? Uh, there is, uh, and there is. There's, there's quite a lot. There's certainly more than Urban Splash were. The, the developer would be required to to provide okay. Urban Splash of. Um, I think done. You know, what they've done has been quite con- controversial in the city, just because of the of its history. But I think there, there's quite a lot of social housing in there. There's a lot of student accommodation in there, and they've done they've done a really good job in in renovating the whole the whole site because it's a massive site. It's a it's, you know, huge, it's, it's a whole it? it's a whole hill. It, it it's listed, and that um, that means it's not quite it's not eternally immune from being pulled down. But it 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 did prevent. The council doing what they did to the neighbouring Hyde Park uh, estate in the eighties, where they just pulled that down and replaced it. Did you like it, Ed? I mean, did you? Did were the flats actually? Stuck? Yeah, I did. I, I did, of course. But I'm a, you know, I'm a southern urbanite, you know, lefty, woke, <laughs> you know, bloke. It's much more important that the local communities like it, and and there is a debate to be had about gentrification. And the only way to save these kind of buildings is through. Um, through that kind of gentrification by a high-end um, developer. I mean, I think Tom Broxham and Urban Splash are, are pretty impressive people who mm. kind of made, made the weather in this area for many, many years. But I'm also interested, looking forward, Charlotte, in um, how Rob feels about the arts at the moment. Because obviously, as I said, the Crucible is a key uh, piece of the theatre jigsaw in England, and you're a kind of senior producing theatre. And obviously, there's been this big row about the latest Arts Council settlement and an ongoing debate about levelling up. I mean, you're in a kind of ringside seat about where you see the arts in the next few years. It's it's tricky, isn't it? Because, you know, we are supposedly the theatres like ours and, and um, cities like ours are supposedly the beneficiaries of, of, of the, de- the, the de-investment, is that the word, in, in London. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I think that... Uh, and I would say this, wouldn't I? But I, it feels very short-sighted. The uh, the wholesale cutting of institutions like the ENO, like um, Hampstead, that that are not just about serving a community or, or an audience in London that's perceived to be privileged and catered for elsewhere, but also feeds the rest of the... You know, we are, we are a massive network or uh, a massive ecology right we, we 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 all we all coexist and we all rely on each other you know the, sheffield is is has really proudly served the west end with everybody's talking about jamie with life of pi now at the national theater we've got two shows that we're presenting in collaboration with the lyric hammersmith uh, in the in the coming months a new production of good person of sechuan and um, a really smashing production of uh, accidental death of an anarchist that opened here uh, uh, last year that I urge people to go and see because it's just brilliant. Starring Danny Rigby, it's so good. We're all interconnected, and uh, and to to, to tr- and we should never be placed in competition with each other. Mm-hmm. And it's it's very hard when there was when there are limited funds. I do understand that it's it's very difficult not to take. You know, if you're going to give with one hand, you have to take away with another. But but there are. It, it does feel like we are. The narrative is that we're pitched into a sort of competitive 
marketplace and that that that's cannot be right for the the spirit with which we need to come together to make art in difficult times i mean it seems to me that the cuts were made with very little consultation we all have uh, relationships with the arts council that that um that are long standing in sheffield we're lucky we have a very good relationship manager um who with whom we work to to keep that relationship going but um and, and i can't i can't speak for what what happened in those theatres where there was there was a cut uh, and, and how much it doesn't seem like there was a lot of consultation from from what we hear um the arts council have placed in a very difficult position i i, I recognize that it does feel like the, the 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 political motivation for some of what is what has been happening um hasn't uh, uh, has put them in a very very difficult spot no question but at least we've got standing at the sky's edge yeah. To show what collaboration between London and Sheffield. Well, yeah, it's, it's it, it, we are we are we're very very grateful that the National Theatre came on board. Uh, uh, this it was all, it was already a collaboration between us and uh, an independent production company, and then and then to kind of make it a three way relationship, I think has has really taken the show to the next level and given us an, a chance to share this story that we've proudly made in Sheffield with the rest of the world. I mean, the Olivier is a wonderful place to stage this play because the set is just fantastic. You know, it's such a big theatre, the Olivier. It just looked absolutely terrific. It does look great in the Olivier, doesn't it? I think that was always a worry because it worked, it worked brilliantly in the, in the Crucible because it, was, it always felt like it was part of the architecture of the Crucible, yes, part of yes. the, 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 the concrete um aesthetic here but, and then of course but you know we shouldn't have worried that's it, that the the olivier is is also a, a, a kind of giant concrete yeah. hall isn't it so uh, i think the way that it it now sits in that theater feeling like it it, it was feeling like the theater was kind of built around it yes doesn't that's it? exactly what it felt um, like yeah uh just yeah I, I think we were all really really excited ben stones who designed it um <laughs> would people the number of people who come up to him go oh, it looks like it was designed for the Olivier and he sort of says well uh it was <laughs> that was that was my that was my my skill in designing a, th- a set for t- t- knowing that it was going into two two theatres yeah. um equally so as um Ed and I are both West Londoners tell us uh just tell us a bit more about those two um you know the 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 Brecht and whatever it is coming to um the lyric. Uh, the Good Person of Sechuan is a new adaptation by Nina Segal of uh, Brecht's brilliant, funny, coruscating play um, about greed and the individual. Uh, it's directed by our associate artistic director, Anthony Lau, who um, did a brilliant production of Anna Karenina for us last year. Um, that's, it's co-produced with the Lyric Hammersmith and with English Touring Theatre. Uh, and uh, it's very, very funny, very anarchic. Um, they're in rehearsal at the moment. There's lots of loud music and and uh, loud noises coming out the rehearsal room. So I'm enjoying. Uh, I'm going to really enjoy that when it opens here uh, next month and then transfers down to uh, uh, to the lyric shortly after. And uh, accidental death of an anarchist is uh, a new adaptation of Dario Fo by Tom Basden, um, directed by Daniel Raggett, starring Daniel Rigby. Um, who uh, you might know from Flowers, uh, from his BAFTA-winning turn as Eric Morecambe, and he channels all of those 
those comedy instincts into an absolute powerhouse central performance um, that we really want everybody to see, which is why we were so thrilled when it, it transferred from our Playhouse Theatre, which is our smallest space, to the Lyric, and that opens uh, uh, in about a month's time. Where is uh, Standing at the Sky's Edge going to go next? Because it's had such an unbearably short run in London, so I think it already it's... You know, listeners, get your tickets fast. Where's it going? Where's it? Where's it go next? Um, I don't know. I mean, we very much hope it will go on. It's a, it's a story we want to keep telling. It's always our mission to be making work in Sheffield for Sheffield audiences. But when we hit on something that we think will resonate with wider audiences, with other places in this country and around the world, then. We work really hard to to uh, to get that work out and, and 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 take that work that we're really proud of to onto a wider stage. So hopefully, standing at the sky's edge, we'll we'll follow in those footsteps. Watch this space. I mean, I just want it would play Brilliant. very well somewhere like Detroit, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, isn't when they did. Um, isn't the the American version of the Full Monty set in Detroit, which is a you know originally a Sheffield oh. a Sheffield narrative. Oh, um, that's interesting. God, Charlotte, you're, you're gifted. You're wasted as a podcast host. <laughs> you should be a producer, <laughs> an international producer. <laughs> thank you, and I'd love to be an international producer. Right. Well, thank you so much for yeah. coming on, Rob. Yes, it's been you. a pleasure. Thank you, you very much. Fantastic. Yeah, Thanks thank so much. Thank you. Next week, we're going to be filling you in on some of the fun events being organised around International Women's Day. And we're going to be talking about P.G. Woodhouse with Bill Humble, the writer of a new one-man show called Woodhouse in Wonderland, which is touring the country until the end of April. Robert Dawes, who plays Woodhouse, is also going to be with us on the podcast. So that's going to be lots of fun. And we're going to be finding out all sorts of things about Woodhouse that you might not have known before. As usual, you can find us at countryandtownhouse.com. You'll find the latest digital edition of the magazine there, as well as our sister podcast, House Guest, Carol Annette, who talks to some of the most fascinating and influential names in interior design. We love your feedback, so we want to hear from you if there's something you'd like to hear us profiling. Please leave a comment or email us on charlotte at countryandtownhouse.co.uk. See you next week.